This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, and others with topics that will pique your curiosity. I'll be your host, Taj. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Jacqueline Badalora about her informative book titled Birth of a White Nation, The Invention of White People and Its Relevance Today. Birth of a White Nation is a fascinating book on race in America that begins with an exploration of the moment in time when quote unquote white people as a separate and distinct group of humanity were invented through legislation and the enactment of laws. It provides a thorough examination of the underlying reasons, as well as the ways in which white people were created, and how the creation of whiteness divided laborers and ultimately served the interests of the elite. Birth of a White Nation demonstrates how the social construction and legal enactment of white people has ultimately compromised the humanity of those so labeled white. Dr. Jacqueline Badalora is currently a lawyer and a professor of sociology and criminal justice at St. Xavier University. She is also a former Chicago police officer, and she holds a Ph.D. from Northwestern University and has been engaged in anti-racist training since the mid-1990s. Dr. Jacqueline Badalora, welcome to Book Speeds and Beyond. Thank you for having me, Tosh. Well, thank you for writing this book. I just want to ask you, what, what is about your life experiences that compelled you to do the work that you do that ultimately led you to write this book? Well, I lived in Europe um, when I was a child until about the age of nine. Um, and then I moved to Victoria, Texas. And, um, and it was very much a, a culture shock. Mm-hmm. And um, I learned very quickly that there were meanings attached to this visual difference that I observed in skin color. Mm. Um, I learned it very quickly when I arrived. And of course, um, at least when I was in Victoria, Texas, the people who I visibly saw um, were people with uh, low levels of melanin called white people, um, people with more melanin called um, Hispanics, and then those with even more who were referred to as um, African-Americans or blacks. Um, and so I, I, did, I had no sort of, of course, at that young age, um, I just took it for granted and assumed that what I was being taught about these so-called differences um, had some basis in biology and nature, um, and that the, the different meanings that were attached to these different categories um, were themselves inevitable or natural, the result of nature. So I certainly took all of that for granted at the time. But then by the time I went into high school, um, I, I made the, the tragic mistake as a white person of falling in love with a, um, an African-American fellow. Bas- we play basketball together almost every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so... And so I had these experiences then of when, when friends or their parents in particular, white friends and their white parents in particular, um, knew about my relationship with, with Rick, um, 
they began to treat me very differently, mm. began to treat my my family very differently. And so I I had this very personal experience of realizing that this thing called whiteness or white was it, it was somehow um it could be taken away, parts of it anyway could be taken away, right? Because it's it's not just low levels of melanin. It it's a set of rules. Yeah. And and so and of course I didn't have language for that at the time, but but those experiences that I now have language for um, have informed my entire life in terms of my pursuit of a law degree and my particular interests in um, graduate work at Northwestern. So, and they've guided me ever since trying to make sense of these so-called human differences and then how they are given just dramatically different meanings in law and in our just interactions and, and interpersonal relationships. I think you said something interesting that you 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 were born and raised a little bit in in England I think you said and Belgium 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 sorry yes. and okay. and the concept of white brown black wasn't the same or would you say it was because you were at a younger age or you said hit you immediately when you came to America I'm just wondering what is it like over there that made that shock how do they, what's their color sure. code, well, you know? I, it, it was the sheer absence. Mm. And th- of course, does that mean that people of African descent are not in Belgium? Of course it doesn't mean that. Right. <laughs> but yeah. what it does mean is that for my young life and the geographic areas that I moved in, I see. Um, were, were all white. In fact, the outsiders that I learned about by that age were, um, were called gypsies. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So that that was sort of the outlier, um, outsiders defined in that context. I see. Now you also said that you were a, a Chicago police officer at one time. Why not anymore? That's correct. Why not anymore? You know what? I I had really. I, first of all, it, you need to understand that I became a Chicago police officer. Um, after having a law degree and a PhD, uh, what what happened was there was a, um, a, a, I mean, nothing that, that would shock anyone today. Um, while I was in graduate school at Northwestern, um, a, an undergraduate student by the name of Mark Russ, um, African-American um, undergraduate student, was pulled over on Lakeshore Drive, shot and killed, mm-hmm. unarmed, you know, the, the, the typical story. Yeah. And then the, the next day, and this was, by the way, just as I was um, getting ready to, to graduate with my PhD. Wow. The next day, a woman by the name of Latanya Haggerty, black woman, unarmed, shot and killed, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. the, the same terrible tragedy um, that we're all too familiar with today. And I was just, I, I was my studies focused on, on race and I was, I, I was so disturbed and what had preceded this series of events is that while I was teaching um, criminal justice students at the University of Illinois Chicago while I was completing my PhD, um, I took the police exam not with no intention of becoming a police officer but because I thought it may help me be a better teacher right. um, and, and so many of my students were taking it. So, so all of that came together for me and I just thought, you know what? Um, I feel so compelled to, to explore this thing called law enforcement and, and pol- the work of policing. And I 
hope that it'll be a place and institution within which I can, you know, bring these skills that I've been so fortunate to, to learn in law and um, race studies. Um, but it, it turned out that that wasn't the case. It became very clear that unless you knew somebody or had the right relationship, um, I, I wasn't going to be given those opportunities in the Chicago Police Department. Uh, so I, I, yeah. resi- I resigned the day after that became <laughs> apparent. So I was a, I was an officer for um, roughly three years. Okay, okay. But it was again, it was a it was an amazing experience for a middle class white girl. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, you said something interesting in the book before we dive a little bit in you kind of opened the first paragraphs you said that you were born a female but made a white girl what do you mean right absolutely well that again getting to that idea that there are rules attached um, to whiteness and to, to that label um being white and there's lessons that um, those who are are given that label in a, in a social context um, that we learn about. And, yeah. and so, um, you know, from, for, for example, let me make, I, I'm speaking in more academic uh, and abstract terms, but let me make it really concrete. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, um, when I was a child growing up, I was given um, little dolls, that had very light skin always. Mm -hmm. And then I was given sort of the, um, the representation of ideal female beauty in the United States called Barbie. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so, and so, and my brother given GI Joe, you know, white skinned. And so these, these toys represented ideal uh, American qualities and they were always white. Mm-hmm. Right. So I learned that white represents, you know, the savior, the, the real American, the, um, the person who can represent ideal beauty, yeah. um, and, and all those things. So, and, and that's just in those two little toys, you know, <laughs> yeah. but it came, yeah. it, it came from everywhere. I it know. came from, I was raised Catholic, and when I went to Mass on Sunday, I just got more of it. I got images <laughs> of God as a white man, yeah. images of Jesus as, you know, skin as pale as mine and blue eyes. <laughs> you know, right. really, it came at everything that was positive in my world was uh, virtually everything was represented as white. Mm-hmm. Good point. And you know, and you're young. No one's even telling you this. This is just based off your observation as a child. Absolutely. My parents were both college educated and, 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 and proper. Yeah. <laughs> and would, I never heard um, the N word ever. And I, I only one time in my whole life can remember um, one of my parents telling a joke that was completely racially inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but but for a whole lifetime among white people, um, that's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Not that that's okay, because it's not, <laughs> right. but the one yeah. time isn't okay. Right. So yeah. so let's get a, a little bit into the book. You you talk about, you know, birth of the white nation. And uh, so so when was the human category of white conceived? When was it born? We're going to stop right here and take a quick break. And we'll be right back. Until the philosophy which old one race superior and another 
inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war miss a war that until they're no longer first class and second class citizens of any nation until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than the color of his eyes miss a war that until the basic human rights are equally guaranteed to all without regard to race and it's a war that until that day the dream of lasting peace world citizenship rule of international morality will remaining but a fleeting illusion to be pursued but never attained now everywhere is war war and until the ignoble so when was the human category of white conceived when was it born it arose in the very first reference to to people called whites was in 1681 in colonial North America, um, and the lawmakers in Maryland were the ones who passed um, a law that referenced British and other white people. Mm. So, but what's important about it is that. Um, it followed this massive rebellion called Bacon's Rebellion oh, yes. in in neighboring Virginia. Um, and Virginia and Maryland um, were very similar in that both had their economies based in tobacco farming. Um, and because their economies were so similarly rooted, they their laws frequently mirrored. Um, each other. Mm -hmm. And so Virginia had this massive rebellion. It lasted well over a year. Um, and in letters, Theodore Allen's work is really important for this. He, he dug into these letters between the lawmakers in Virginia and the legal oversight authority of the colonies in England. And, and those communications reveal a couple of really important things. First of all, they revealed that the rebellion was widely supported. And, and the other thing to note um, is that the vast majority of people in these colonies at this moment in time, right, we're in the 1670s, mm -hmm. were poor British men. Yeah. The, the ratio of male to female was about 12 to, 10 to 12 to 1, wow. <laughs> 10 to 12 men for every one female. Um, were, were British men. This was not the point in time where huge numbers of people forced into enslavement from Africa were brought here. So just so we understand sort of the uh, demographics of this moment in time. Okay. Uh, there were people of African descent here, but they weren't significant in uh, really a, a large population at this point, though they're getting ready to become so. <laughs> ah, so you're so, saying, you're saying the big, th this is, this is in Virginia, uh, it is a, a, really a lot of British 
indentured servants, but there's also Correct. a few African people of African descent, but they're not s- considered slaves at this time. Oh no, they they were oh, okay. they were absolutely in, um, considered enslaved. They okay. were they were considered slaves. Okay. Um, that was actually a debate at the time that I wrote among scholars at the time that I wrote the book. Mm. But it has been resolved with um, the finding of book uh, excuse me um, ship manifests in Portugal, oh, and so it established that the first persons of African descent who were brought into those colonies were you know, white people had deemed them already to be enslaved. Mm. So that, that's a resolved issue now um, in, in this consideration of this period. So you have this huge, massive rebellion. Theodore Allen's work reveals that, that it was widely, widely supported by the people in the colonies. And, and I just want to make one correction. It wasn't just indentured ser- British indentured servants. Okay. Um, and enslaved persons of African descent who were um, supportive of it. But um, those who had survived indentured or been freed from enslavement, and there's, let, me, let me tell um, your listeners how that occurred. We know from the records that there were uh, free men of African descent, free people of African descent, and we might ask, well, how the heck yeah. did that happen if we know <laughs> that they came enslaved? Yeah. Um, it happened in a number of ways. First of all, um, they had many skills that the you know the many of the British people didn't have um, many of the skills needed for this environment, um, and so uh, persons of African descent were often quite valuable in terms of the skills they possessed. So they were able to have side jobs um, and able to make money and purchase their own freedom and that of their family. And let me ask you, um, when so that they, is one way when they were. F- considered free were they really considered free or was it more like they always felt like they were on edge had to show papers like what kind of free are we talking about absolutely not that that is a uh, that's a post bacon's rebellion um context mm. before bacon's rebellion well let me let me first finish how how okay. um they became free so the number one route was to purchase their own freedom Another um, thing revealed in the historical record is that uh, wills and trusts of um, British and other white plantation owners reveal that um, persons of African descent who had been enslaved were freed. Um, And so these were the primary mechanisms. And so let's look at how um, freed persons of African descent were treated at the time. Um, They could vote, and they did. Hmm. They could run for public office, but I can't find in the historical records anyone who actually did. Uh, They could purchase land, and they did. They could own um, enslaved people of African descent, and they did. Mm. Uh, They could own British indentured servants, and they did. So so it was um, a version of freedom for African Americans that in many ways we've we've never accomplished again. Yeah, right. So and so that's by law, people freed men of British descent or African descent had the same rights responsibilities as a matter of law. Hmm. But then we have this massive rebellion, um, and and by the way, let me give historical credit to Edmund Morgan. He's the historian who whose work really reveals this moment in time as. Um, that, that I just laid out in this pre-Bacon's Rebellion period. So now shift to this rebellion that is huge, widely supported, very popular among the masses in the colony. Um, and 
it ultimately, as I mentioned, it lasted well over a year, and it took um, England sent in troops to ultimately quash the rebellion. Hmm. And, and the rebellion included people of African descent and British descent, not just indentured and enslaved people, but um, small farmers who, could, who were finding it harder and harder to compete with the large plantations who were no longer paying their workers because they were bringing them, purchasing them through the African slave trade. Um, and so people were really struggling um, at this time. And so that's why the rebellion was so popular. And the rebellion was, um, there were two parts of the rebellion. One focused on um, anti-Native American sentiment. Um, and the second focus was on the ruling elite. And so ultimately, after over a year, the rebellion was was put down. And it is at that moment in that, in that decade following the um, rebellion being put down that we see for the very first time um, something extraordinary in law. And, and we, we can make sense of it again through the work of Theodore Allen, who looks into those written communications between the lawmakers here in the colonies and the legal oversight authority in London. And those um, communique reveal that the uh, the folks in London, who of course were concerned about their investment yeah. in their corporation, <laughs> right? <laughs> they were very um, people were panicked in the British colonies because of Bacon's Rebellion. Mm. The letters reveal absolute panic among the the ruling elite. And finally, the the Virginia lawmakers say, you know, don't worry, we've got this under control. We're going to pursue a divide and conquer strategy. And right just after these written communications are going back and forth, we see for the first time the assertion of a group of people called white people. Wow. And, And it's packed into these laws, for example, a law that, um, prohibits now for the first time um, black free blacks from running for public office Mm. Um, a law that um, prohibits black people and tribal people from marrying whites Mm. like giving meaning to whiteness now here's where you get to some of the real meanings of whiteness um, and the newly inscribed meanings of of Africanness and that is the law that made it um, illegal for black people to testify against a white person. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That... Right, because what, <laughs> what is the meaning of whiteness there? That, that I, as, and I am a white person, mm-hmm. so I will just use an I, that, I, that the law, the legal system, the criminal justice system yeah. is aligned with white people yeah. and will support me no matter what I do. Um, to a person of color, in this case, wow. um, a a black person. And especially if you're saying that how the black people then were considered more free than we would think what we've learned through them being enslaved and being free and that they could own land, that they can do so many things. But at the same time, here comes the 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 African slave trade. And so I guess they had to figure out a way, how can we break their manhood their freedom the true freedom in a sense where we can break up that rebellion and put white at a at a higher level so but as well right so if you look at yeah i mean it was truly a, an extraordinary approach that the lawmakers took and i'm i'm sure they had no idea it would be as successful 
as it has been. <laughs> but wow, yeah. Look at what they did. They took the 99%, the masses, who were, you know, re- rebelling against them, and they managed to chop them up so that they fought against each other. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, right. they created an alliance with the white laborers. They made a connection through something, some, a brand new invention called whiteness, right? Yeah. And now they share that. So never before were the, were the white laborers aligned with the white ruling elite. Mm. But now they did through this thing called, this shared thing called a status, excuse me, a shared status called whiteness um, that was um, imbued with the presumption of superiority relative to those excluded from that category. So they took the masses and divided us from each other in order to protect them. Wow, and it's and white has served that purpose ever since. And, and I I think was interesting as I was reading that at sometimes since it was pretty new, it didn't stick right away. But but what made that term like white truly stick in the mind of the European masses? We'll be right back. Here we go, y'all. Here we go. Here we go, y'all. Go. Can I kick it? Can I kick it? Can I kick it? Go. They say we living in a generation that's full of gentrification. Agenda-based agendas, a genuine indication. Bigger back and forth about who controls the premises, but it's all stolen land from the native people indigenous. The remnants of irreverent is irrelevant. They justify the why through cinematic embellishments. Then we let elitists mislead us. The buffer turn working class whites against all people of color. We suffer the same affliction through economic restriction. Focus on skin tone where they pockets have since grown. It's known the black and white concept is just a myth. Until they get profit from it, race didn't exist. From the current face of a felon to the state that we fell in, to the fabrication and bait after Bacon's rebellion, it was telling. They won't stop till the spectrum is stretched. Do we see ourselves as one? We can never progress. Can I kick it? Can I kick it? Can I kick it? Well, I'm gone. Imagine if I came to your home as a house guest, murdered your whole family before the food could digest. Then waited a hundred years to make an unlawful pack and put your grandfather's face on a baseball hat, helmet, a jersey. Early sign of a corporate influx. Separate church and state, but state and God we trust. On the back of your paper deity, how do we break free of the super? Officially made handcuffs, they hand us Not saying dwell on the past, make them pay for my fall But you can't expect us to heal and not acknowledge the scars Back in college I saw the vast majority Of the frats and sororities going debt Still a masses applaud, no passion at all Depending on whether you act or you pause Like we pay to go to school, to get a job to pay for school To pay some screw, if we do pay it off We have to go to a therapist, try to repair the mental damage it caused They want us to deport the Mexicans, block the Middle East Prostitute the youth and shoot poor people in the streets The fortunate repeat, pull your bootstrap but the leather has been weathered, get tethered after a few laps And whether you do act or fall back is still strenuous Most of us know this, but the motives are disingenuous This continuous lack of admission, why we rap with conviction And break our backs to close the gap that you swim in Every rapper's opinion, basically fed to him They wanna recite the same hype like a teleprompter was read to him Not responsive, I'm dead to him, my subconscious is lead brewing I remember the time when we were considered less than human Three clicks from three-fifths People are quick to judge Still claiming that he riffs But still, there's no way to unreap these My family are immigrants Does that make me a subspecies? Can I kick If you're enjoying Book Speeds and Beyond Do us a favor Go into the show notes of any episode Click on the iTunes logo 
to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. What made that term like white truly stick in the mind of the European masses? Well, sure. First of all, it was there were masses of laws passed. Mm. And, and if you, as a, um, as a white person, happen to um, not work on a large plantation or in a um, more populated um, piece of, of geography, and you sort of missed these laws, well, everybody came to church on Sunday. I see. And the laws were required to be read um, wow. two times a year at church on at church? Sunday and on the courthouse steps. Wow. <laughs> In church and at, on the courthouse steps. That's amazing. <laughs> well, and, and again, so now we see not only an alignment with white superiority, let's just name it for what it is, mm-hmm. uh, a presumption of white superiority, um, with law enforcement and law itself, but now with um, Christianity. Right, right. I was going to ask you, like, why the term white? Why why not something beige or something? Like, what was it about white? <laughs> right. Well, that, that's anyone's guess. I okay. mean, I think they, they had tried other labels um, that that were not working. They had tried Christian, British and other Christians, uh. was uh, a language that had been uh, tried in the past. Um, it, people, of course, can convert. Um, to Christianity, and so it didn't. I, I my, it didn't have the exclusionary impact yeah. um, that I think they were hoping for. Yeah, it, it kind of um, grayed the waters if you kept saying that. Yeah, because a lot of people right, could be it, Christian, converted to Christianity, and yeah, I see. Uh, absolutely. So, so that one wasn't uh, didn't function for these sort of cleaner lines of division. Yeah. Um, and and it also has a visual component that uh, is yeah. has been so critical and and um, so so critical to its continued success because yeah. we still see that today, of course. Absolutely, you're right. I'm, uh, it's 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 been it was baked into the laws, and it's still very successful today. Even if it doesn't say it blatantly, <laughs> it still has passed on from generation well, to generation. But it does say it blatantly. Oh, okay. I can't. Okay. I mean, we. Think about it. You can't in this country. You can't complete a government form without oh, having yeah. or, or, or go to school <laughs> yeah. or, or you know even a, apply for a job without clicking off these invented <laughs> divisions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's really extraordinary how how sustained this idea has been. And what's interesting now that you put I, I forgot all about that. I mean it's just so part of my world now. <laughs> but sure. it, knowing how how it's still around, you started in the book you started talking about um the americanization of whites and you talked about the significance in immigration laws and yes. naturalization laws and contributing to white supremacy. In what ways did uh, these laws contribute to white supremacy? Um, that's a great question. Well, th- the very first Congress of the brand new republic called the United States of America met in 1789, 1790, um, with the task of creating all the laws of this brand new country. Um, and included in that were laws concerning immigration and naturalization. Naturalization is the, the legal process 
um, established for a person who is not born in a country but wants to become a citizen. Mm -hmm. So it creates the legal process. And our founders um, in 1790 determined that in order to naturalize a U.S. citizen, one must be white. (laughs) So we had people – and that law, the requirement of being white, has been – was baked into that, excuse me, was a requirement of naturalization until 1952. Wow. So, so that, think, let, let's sort of think through what that message is, right? That white is aligned with American, right? Because the message is you're the people that we want. And, and because if we want you, we allow you to become us. Hmm. And we're telling all of you non-white people you know, nope, you'll never be American. <laughs> so it aligned white with American from, from the founding moment. And there's, I should tell folks that there is a fantastic book that digs into these, what were called the prerequisite lawsuits, cases, mm-hmm. um, because, of course, a prerequisite to naturalize was to establish that you were white. Mm. Um, and ENS Haney Lopez wrote uh, White by Law, which is a fantastic analysis Wow. of those cases. Wow. So, so and really, ex- no, I'm sorry. I, it, and I was just going to give, give more kudos to, um, uh, Ian F. Haney Lopez, because he really exposes in this book, just how the social construction of whiteness in law, like how law has been used to just invent and create and, and change, um, who, who is white and what white is. It, it, and, and, and you know what? Uh, it, I wonder if this is a fair statement. I feel like right now under our current administration, it feels mm-hmm. like history is repeating itself through the, these immigration and naturalization laws to maintain white supremacy. Is that a fair statement? Um, I believe that that's a fair statement. It, it's, it's, it's pushing in that direction through different mechanisms, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Like we don't have the, a, a blatant law that says you have to be white, right, right. but we know that when you look at you, all, anytime we, we examine law and especially criminal law, you have to always look at enforcement practices. Mm-hmm. So who are the people targeted? Who are the people who are the focus of exclusion? And of course, when, when you um, start to ask those questions, the evidence certainly reveals that it is, um, people who are constructed as not white. Right. Absolutely. And here's an interesting twist to that, and that is that people from um, the Middle East are, are when they click off the, the government forms, have to click off white, mm. but of course have never been treated as white. Oh, wow. Right? Okay. So they're, they're sort of the contingent whites, yeah. like, much like Mexicans who, who found themselves living in the United States after the United States took half of Mexico yeah, <laughs> following y- the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, were, were by law, by federal law, um, white, considered white, but by local and state law were not white. See, that's the interesting. When, when I start reading that part of the book and, you know, contingent whites, and you talk about another term called in-between people, I mean, <laughs> Well, that's David Rodiger's language of oh, in okay. between, right? Because we had Irish Catholics who came, and Southern Italians, and Greeks, and others um, who came uh, to this country, who immigrated to this country, and they, upon first arriving, although today we would look at them and say, "Well, you're white, right?" Yeah. Based on this visual thing, but 
what's if you know your history, you know that that visual thing ha- has never been what really defines white. Mm-hmm. Um, it white it it's always about power. Yes. Um, who wants it? How it's going to get um, uh, distributed and shared or not? And and so these groups, while they were never um, except for Irish Catholics, were really. Um, legally excluded from access to whiteness in law. In other words, they could naturalize, um, but they weren't at the local level treated as fully white. They ended up winning their whiteness, including um, Jewish people, Mm. um, whether Ashkenazi or Sephardic, uh, in particular after World War II. That's when all these different sort of in-between groups firmly... um, won their whiteness why were they they, why were they considered in between groups i mean like because i guess because my mind is now they 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 look like white people like they want us to believe white people look like but why at the time were they considered in between people what was it about them that made them not the same as the whites you see in america what was it well it, it it was an invented exclusion uh, right, because that's what white's all about. Let's let's never lose that. Yeah. It's always about exclusion. So there was competition over jobs and work and fierce competition, right? It's, it, many of these folks came during um, rap periods of rapid industrialization, excuse me, rapid industrialization in this country. Um, and, and so there was um, incredible competition and rapid change also occurring mm-hmm. a- across the country. And so um, I think David Rodiger uses the language of in-between people because they, they were in this limbo place, not really one of these non-white categories, um, but not fully white either. Be- because um, t- to fully be granted that whiteness status, you have to not only be recognized by law – as white, but also um, receive the daily benefits. For example, mm-hmm. and let me be clear about like, what that. So, what the heck does that mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it means in in representational ways, like like the Barbie, the the toys, the religious iconography, um, that there is um, a relationship to that through whiteness. That there is a um, those everyday ways in which whiteness gets conferred advantage. Like I am, when I walk in a bank, Mm -hmm. I I begin with the presumption that I'm a good credit risk. (laughs) I can lose it, but I start with it. Mm, And when I'm driving down the highway and I have interactions with law enforcement, I typically begin with the presumption that I'm law abiding. I can lose it, but I start there. Mm-hmm. And people of color, particularly black and brown people, um, the reverse is, is more often the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, just to get a little bit back on when we're talking about the Irish and be, and after that, I want to talk a little bit about the Mexicans just one more time because of the climate we're in now. But sure. when it came to the, the Irish, they when they were over in England, they kind of experienced slavery under the British. So, so why not when they came over here, seeing that there was the, the competition among them and the African-Americans, why didn't that fail to unite and, and, and create another rebellion? What was different around this time? To say the Irish doesn't really capture what really excluded them, it wasn't their Irishness that, 
had them excluded. It was their Catholicism uh. that found them on the outside of dominant U.S. society at the time. Because let's remember, um, those who held positions of power were all Protestants. Mm. Um, and so there was a, a tremendous fear and anxiety among the Protestant leadership that these, you know, so-called Mary worshipers mm. were coming and that their true allegiance was to Rome, to the Pope, yeah. and not to this country. Wow. So that was some of the narrative that um, was used to, to exclude um, Irish Catholics. I see, I see. And then they won their freedom through what? What specifically? Not their yeah, freedom, well, they, I meant won their whiteness. Right. Well, here, yeah, I think the the history of Irish Catholics, and here I have to give kudos to Noel Ignatiev. He wrote this incredible book called um, How the Irish Became White. Mm. And and so here's what we learn about, about the Irish Catholics is um, the... The primary way in which they were – first of all, it, it, they were able to access naturalization because their Protestant oh. Irish who came before them, um, you know, cleared the way that somebody from Ireland is, um, is white. And so that was huge because mm. if you're a citizen, you can vote. And so here's the other thing that was pretty extraordinary about the Irish Catholics is even though they, because by federal law they were seen as white, they could have gone and take advantage of the virtually free land being given away out west if you were white, mm. um, but they didn't. They, uh, unlike other um, immigrant communities, they stayed in very concentrated areas. And we can think about it today. We think of Boston. We think of Philadelphia, right. yeah. Chicago, right? Like, like we have these like large concentrations of Irish Catholics. And because that was the case for them, they, and, and they could access citizenship, and they did, they became a political um, force to be reckoned uh, with. Okay. In fact, when um, uh, the the newspapers of the day um, often blamed presidential elections, um, you know, the, the, the elitist Protestant um, candidate losing, they would blame it on the Irish Catholics, the Irish <laughs> Catholic vote. Um, and so they're a really um, interesting group. But uh, they, that is not entirely what won them their whiteness. They won their whiteness um, First of all, they were often called inside out N words. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> they were, they lived in communities where, Afri in the north, where um, persons of African descent had been designated. I see. And they came with few skills. Um, and so they, com black people in the north had already been assigned the, um, marginalized jobs, mm -hmm. work as domestics, um, sometimes if they were lucky on, on the men could work on docks. Um, but it's sort of the typical story that we're very familiar with of, you know, black people being given the worst jobs, worst conditions, yeah. least pay. And so the Irish Catholics then were competing and living amongst persons of African descent um, in these cities. And so they began to be referenced in these racially derogatory ways that um, black people were so familiar with. Oh, I see. They, they learned very quickly, though, yeah. that, yeah, uh, and, and that 
that winning whiteness is a way to win Americanness. Yeah. And yeah. so there's a really interesting example of, of Irish dock workers excluding Germans claiming they're not white. So they refused to go to work with the fellow German workers Why? on the German. dock. And they were, and they were holding up sides, you know, not uh, Germans, not white. Germans oh, wow. are white. We won't work with them. And, and obviously that didn't have legs, right? It didn't yeah. go anywhere. <laughs> but when they did those same um, labor actions with regard to persons of African descent, that worked. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so they quickly learned that it we have to win our whiteness, yeah. and they did it by distancing themselves, pushing themselves away and on the backs and shoulders of black people. And it's, I always want to be really clear. It's not that Irish Catholics were particularly evil, bad people. Right. Rather, they came into a context that set up the rules of the game, like Monopoly. Yeah, right. And they... They utilize. I mean, do I wish they hadn't? Of course. And was that an option? Yeah, but a much harder one. Yeah, and I, I like I like that you talked about the how Irish became white because when we talk about race in this country, I always hear some comments from other people who say my family was Irish. We had the same predicament. <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, but you used it. Not, not yeah. quite. I mean, was it hard for them? <laughs> Absolutely. But you know what? You put. I wish I could give a citation to the person who said this, but <laughs> somebody said if you put a little color on it, it's it's going to be harder. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So yeah. So and that's you know you. It's because we don't know our history. Part of what Absolutely. is so frustrating to me is that and and I I have a child who who just completed elementary school, and so as I'm you know, talking with her and learning about the social studies curriculum, Ugh. the content in, yeah. in particular, I mean, we are, are teaching our children um, in terms of content um, so much of what my parents learned. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just not truthful. It, it's, such, it, it's not that they are out-and-out out lies, right? The little pieces that they are given – some lot lots of it it is truth on their own yeah. but they are so out of context and missing so much yeah. that they are nothing near the truth it's this like the omissions are, are very harmful you know huge they are they are so harmful yeah 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 cuz how many of us learned that founding law um, regarding natural, those who could access citizenship in this country required that you be white, and that right. that was in place till 1952. Right. And, and how, we had people who fought wars for this. I mean, because what's the message? It's right. not how smart are you, what gifts do you bring, how much do you love this country? Right. None of that. Right. It's fundamentally rooted in this in white supremacy. Right. I think. I think something. I don't know if we even learned it in school or if we just touched on it for like three seconds but when you talked about the treaty of guadalupe hidalgo and how mexicans were considered contingent whites at one time <laughs> and and what that treaty how much land was taken and you look at our climate now and all these people say go back to your country <laughs> you don't belong here <laughs> like oh yeah we're in their living room you know is that's exactly right it's, it's amazing so um so how, how does one challenge this fiction of whiteness? 
We'll be right back. Could a texture so soft and cloud-like Leave a life so bloody Leave a hand so soulless Reaching for its whiteness Many leaves have rose and fell back to the earth to tell that the sunlit mind been through hell, been blues and through a spell to this very day. So please don't drink the bleach That ain't the drink to drink Recharge with the stars That shine where you are does one challenge this fiction of whiteness? Well, I mean, there are so many ways and there's no one way and you can't take one path and be successful. Mm. So let me be more concrete with that. Mm. We, we all, especially white people, but, but all of us are part of dominant U.S. culture and society. And, and so what am I saying? I'm saying that People who are not who are excluded from whiteness have adopted messages of white superiority, and we see that in colorism, right? Where yeah. people who are lighter shades of, Af- uh, of African American identity are uh, have privileges. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, skin bleaching in the Philippines right now. It's a huge um, issue. We've had it historically in this country in African American communities, um, and and this colorism that preferences lighter skin is alive and well in Hispanic communities yeah. um, as well. So, so we, we all have to dig in to our own, um, I call it your biography of whiteness, and, and because our childhood messages and experiences, most of us act out of them the rest of our lives. When yeah. we're 100 years old, most of us are still acting out of our yeah. <laughs> um, messages from childhood, unless unless you do your unpacking work. Mm. And so we all need to, in that deep personal way, um, dig into our relationship um, to whiteness. And, and so that's one thing. That's that very personal, pretty individual component. Then we all need to learn, um, and white people in particular, because when we don't know this, we 
the harms that we enact because we remain in a power position um, are so damaging. Um, but we need to understand some of the basics of law and policy in this country that have conferred um, have established white superiority as a matter of law um, and and implicated every institution. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so if, when we don't know enough, and and I'm not saying we all have to become historians, we don't, Mm -hmm. but, but we need to go back through those, you know, 10 inch history books that our high school students are given Mm -hmm. and, and make sure that the information about, uh, law and policy that conferred advantages to white people at every turn um, is, is reflected in there. And it's not right now. In fact, um, Richard Rothstein wrote um, The Color of Law. Oh, yeah, we interviewed him. Book- yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so, you know, he, he did an analysis of these high school textbooks, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And he, again, exposes that, you know, this isn't in there. Like, mm-hmm. we are denying and, – and here's what is so frustrating about that. I, you know, because I can hear some critics saying, well, we don't want people to hate our country. Our people should love our country. <laughs> you know what? I love my country. Yeah. I don't hate my country. Right. I, and I, I think its ideals from, from its founding have been our wonderful ideals, mm-hmm. but we've never gotten to them. Never honored them, yeah. Um, n- never realized those. And I want us as a nation to move toward them. And the only way we can truly confront this, uh, you know, virtually every few day exclusion of black people because someone is a a Yale student sleeping in a study room or sitting in a Starbucks waiting for a friend or being shot and killed unarmed for a traffic stop. We are not going to be able to address those until we understand where they came from, where the mindset that leads so many of us white people to those conclusions, mm-hmm. that is common. In some ways, it's, it's not, I'm going to be cautious saying this, it, it would be extraordinary if white people didn't go to those conclusions in mm. light of our socialization. <laughs> no, I know, because I was going to ask you, like, why would whites work to dismantle whiteness when there's so many unearned advantages from the system. Why, why, why? Yeah, because here's why, because we are damaged humans. Mm. Like you think about, I, I, I think I talked about this a little bit in the book, but because I, I lived in Europe and in Germany, um, excuse me, I lived in Belgium, but we traveled to Germany a few times. And I rem- and so world war two, um, was kind of all around me, markers of World War. In fact, there was a bunker um, in our backyard uh, wow. from the war. So, so it was, and, and as a, a very young kindergartner, we were brought to um, a concentration camp. So it was, you know, really a powerful um, part of my growing up. And so I, re- I remember when, when my family went on this vacation um, to Germany, and I met, you know, these Germans who were presumably Christian, uh, many of them, and I just remember talking to my parents, like, how could these people have done that? Right. Um, and, and I remember, you know, I think it was my mom um, who said, you know what, they're, they lost their humanity. Ooh, you yeah. know, they were caught up in, in, in 
blaming and, and other things, and they really lost their humanity. And that has stuck with me because I'm trying to make sense now that I have a, a learning so much in my research about you know, deeply embedded white supremacy in this right. nation and in me. <laughs> right, right. Um, and, and, and I can see so well now, and I didn't write about this in the book, but it, it will be in my forthcoming book, um, about all of the evidence of, of our, our, and by our I mean white people's, mm-hmm. damaged humanity. Mm. And perhaps the, the best example I can give um, is this. When you, I'm sure, will recall the crack epidemic. Yeah, um, right. Right, mm-hmm. and and so which communities were largely impacted oh, by that? Black communities, African American yeah. communities, yeah. <laughs> right? And 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 when we look at policy and and national responses and local responses, what what did we focus on? We focus on the war on drugs and the victims as the criminals. Absolutely, we we incarcerated, incarcerated, right. incarcerated, incarcerated. Okay. So, and, and we have, of course, Michelle Alexander's The, the New Jim Crow, where right. we can see these masses of black and brown people who are incarcerated, most for nonviolent offenses. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that's one story. Now let's jump to the present moment. We have an opioid epidemic. Yeah. And which communities are, are disproportionately impacted by this epidemic? Uh, white people. And no yeah, one, right? Yeah. And, and it's not a war. And what is our response? <laughs> uh, let's figure out a way to help them. This is a crisis. Yeah. Yeah. It. It is. There is a. There is compassion. Yeah. We. We white people. And and I'll share. We. Well, let me finish that, and then I'll share something a, a personal realization with regard to this. Um. We white people largely don't give a damn that yeah. black and brown people um, have had their lives shattered. Um, because they're incarcerated, families divided because they're incarcerated, children growing up without parents because they're incarcerated. Mm-hmm. We don't care enough because if we did, um, we would have been in the streets. We would have been demanding change. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't care. Yeah. So when it happens to white people, we have um, healthy empathy. Yeah. <laughs> but we do not have it for black and brown people. And that's, I mean... That, I think that's one of the clearest examples, but there are millions of examples of yeah. ways in which our um, our humanity has been um, so diminished, and and, and especially when I talk to faith based communities, mm-hmm. uh, white faith based communities, um, they're they get that they get it right away and they're like if i'm honest with myself that's right i hate but they hate admitting it right yeah. <laughs> it's a really hard thing to, yeah, to admit uh, but i i realized it myself when i was in graduate school and i was you know something happened on on tv um there were uh some white people who were shot on a train um in new york city and then there were um, virtually the same number of people of African descent who had been killed in a different situation. And the fact that I can't even remember the details yeah. of that is also revealing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I had a, a conscious moment of realizing I don't feel the same about both of those tragedies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I had to confront, you know, that was my very first like smack in the head conscious, 
realization of my own um, damaged humanity. And so, so that's why white people um, should be and 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 growing numbers are invested in um, shattering uh, unearned white privilege and and white supremacy from our culture and society. And also, some are also really invested in it because um, we believe in this ideal of of fairness and equality, <laughs> right? Yeah. As an as an ideal, and and you know, it's really it. You don't feel as good when you know that. Yeah, I'm a success. I own my own house. Right. I take a vacation. I got a little nest for retirement. When you realize that you were given that, while your neighbor who worked probably even harder, maybe harder than you, mm-hmm. uh, but whose um, racial classification is different doesn't can't even come close it changes we want to believe it's about hard work and ingenuity meritocracy yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) and when you realize that so i don't care if you are lesbian disabled um poor but you're white you still got things Mm -hmm. via your whiteness doesn't Mm -hmm. mean you don't have tremendous challenges um, because of those uh, other statuses, right. but your whiteness brought access to citizenship, access literally access to you know to diners, to restaurants, to banks, to neighborhoods, to schools. Right. <laughs> so yeah, so so it's I, the more white people understand this history, um, the the I believe we will have a a wave. Of of white people interested in challenging white supremacy, but it, and and it takes time. But here's the thing, you know, people constantly say to me, um, you know, Dr. Pratalora, it you know, we over three, between 300, 500 years it took to to create all these divisions. It's going to take that long, so we need to be patient. And I'm like, that <laughs> is not true. Yeah. That is not. It is not true. Not true at all. Um, it it can. It can shift in one generation. Yeah, yeah. White supremacy was here before I arrived, but it doesn't have to be here when I leave. Right, right. We really can change it. And and I'm, you know, my own life journey is is one example right. uh, of not. The, and I I also want to be clear. I am very much on a journey. I have not arrived at the land of white awareness if that <laughs> even exists. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? But yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in it and, and I want my humanity back. Um, and, and I realize that, that white supremacy has denied me the capacity to love, you know, over half the world's population. Right. Yeah. That's, you, that's a pretty, yeah. that's you, a pretty terrible limitation. You said some white awareness that right there, just knowing that you are white. Cause right now it seems like something invisible, right? It's, supposedly the norm right and and you kind of talked about how at some levels you can consider yourself a white supremacist people don't like that word because of what it connotes in the brain but but um how 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 do you challenge yourself and and how do you you challenge your 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 enactments to to white supremacy because we live in these waters and and how do you challenge your friends and families to challenge when they act on their their white supremacy (laughs) 
Let me take it back to my childhood Six Flags still called Wildwood Where I heard every race is a neighbor and We was working class trying to make it out of our hood My best friend back then was a white kid We was tight, he liked the same things I did Despite us being different colors, man We was tight as Emma's and we called each other brothers While I was trying to keep my nights clean He was trying to scuff his chucks up He was grunge, I was fresh, we were younger We cussed on the rap, trying to sneak up in the punk clubs But things changed when his pops got laid off He blamed my father for the loss of his job He said immigrants rob citizens a job And I better never set foot again in this job Cause we became adults in a call called America He got himself a job as an officer of law My thoughts got blacker and his views got cracker There was no way back to the roots at heart Many years apart I recognize him in the news He shot a black man that was sitting in his car Near the same part where we used to shoot hoops And all I could blame is the cause you How do you challenge yourself, and and how do you ch- in challenge your, your your enactments to to white supremacy? Because we live in these waters, and and how do you challenge your friends and families to challenge when they act on their their white supremacy? Absolutely. Well, you know, the the best thing I do is is I'm attentive. Mm. You know, like every day I'm attentive, and it doesn't mean that I don't fall into things yeah. uh, because I do. You know, and oftentimes it's, it's interacting um, systems of privilege, you know, like I, it'll be my class and my race yeah. um, combining <laughs> in ways, you know, that I'm like, Oh my God, did I just do that? Did I just <laughs> presume yeah. that my white middle-class self can park in this place that says no parking? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like just the, the, some of the arrogance that comes with that and and to pay attention. And it doesn't, again, I just want to be really honest that it doesn't mean I don't do them. Mm -hmm. Um, Still, I, I, because I, I've learned that I need to be attentive daily Mm -hmm. um, to, to my whiteness and, and how I carry it and enact it. um, I'm, I'm pretty good about catching it. And um, I apologize when I may have harmed someone. Um, and I also try to share with other white people who, who, were, who were part of a, an enactment, if that makes sense. <laughs> yes. You know, to be like, you know what, I, I participated in X, Y, and Z, and I, I'm really, I realized later that, that, you know, I think it was really problematic for these reasons, and I'm really sorry that I did that. And, and you know, that's a way of letting someone else know, yeah, you were doing that too. <laughs> and, and yeah. you know, it's sort of a nice way. And, and you can do that in a professional setting mm-hmm. with, with little risk. Yeah. Um, but in terms of family, you know, we talk a lot about race. I made sure that when um, my daughter was little that we read picture books. Mm. And, and the one that I found so helpful for this was Ruth and the Green Book. Um, and it tells the story of this little girl who's um, in the 1960s who's going from Chicago to the Deep South to visit Grandma. And, of course, they, their car breaks down. They need a place to sleep. And no, but none of the white people will serve them gas, give them a place to sleep, etc. So, so she gets to learn yeah. that um, 
that white people didn't treat, and of course then she didn't have race racial terms. It was brown people yeah, to right, her, yeah. and then you know slowly had to teach her these racialized terms. Mm-hmm. But light-skinned people treated uh, dark-skinned people in these ways, and um, so she got to learn some terminology that she was unfamiliar with. She got to learn about historically accurate mm-hmm. experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've built off of that um, throughout her life. You know, she got that when she was four, three or four, um, and we've, we, we return to it still, you know, today, um, six years, seven, eight years later. Yeah. Wow. I, I, it, you're right. If, if, if America or the world, if, if white supremacy really wanted, if we, we could definitely get rid of it if we really wanted to, like you said, but there's yeah. all kind of things in place that do not that stop that. And I like how you said about white awareness, because as black people, we have black awareness every minute of the day and and mm-hmm. and the stress that causes to be so um, aware all the time, just just for white people to try to do that, they will start to see how this world really operates you know a white a white awareness will open up a whole new bag of <laughs> perceptions absolutely and, and, and you know what i know we're we're running short on time so i i want to say one other way that i think is perhaps the most powerful way that we can um create positive change in terms of dismantling this um uh white superiority built into our structures and systems and our own hearts and that is through our education system. Oh, yeah. um, and so I, I told you, you know, I've been not appalled with the teachers, but with the, the many of the texts mm-hmm. and the versions of history that our children are fed today, um, which is much like it was in the past. <laughs> yeah. um, and so we, as, a, as communities who, who pay tax dollars to public schools, need to say, no, we can do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of my disgust with, with the fifth grade content, has res- I, I co-authored a book um, with Rachel Webster, who's directed the creative writing um, at Northwestern University, and we have co-authored a book that we hope will be used for fifth grade um, curriculum in the area of social studies regarding colonial North America, and it'll be called, um, I, it's a working title, so it tells the true story of a British indentured servant named Molly Walsh, <laughs> okay. um, and so we're going to call it Molly um, from an, I think we call it a biography of an indentured servant from, or something else, from indentured servant to uh, I can't even remember. Uh, to American. That's what we decided yesterday <laughs> on the title. So, but it's written, and we have a, a, a phenomenal illustrator, um, and so I'm really proud of it. And I'm hoping it will be, it will add to those of us who are really trying to challenge the content our children are given. Um, the content of history, especially that our children are given in school. Wow. Well, I just want to say, Dr. Uh, Jacqueline Badalor, I, I, we need you to continue the journey, continue the fight, keep, keep aware, keep the white awareness alive because that's the only way that we're going to dismantle this. Um, and, and we truly appreciate your efforts uh, and in this journey uh, to dismantle white supremacy. And I just want to say thank you so much for being on Books, Beats and Beyond. Thank you, Taj. It was really wonderful. Thank you for reading the book and for engaging so thoughtfully um, and critically. I, I so value this this time we've had together. Can, can I also give a plug to, to myself? Sure, yes. If anybody, I, I engage in public speaking 
um, and I would love to share the story of the invention of white people, um, please go to my website um, if you're interested in having me come speak or if you're interested in educational tools. I have many of them, including This Week in History that runs for a whole year and helps people see the ways in which white superiority has been built into our systems. Um, and you will find it at Jacqueline. It's a, it's a mouthful. So JacquelineBattleLaura.com. J-A-C-Q-U-E-L-I-N-E, Battleora, B-A-T-T-A-L-O-R-A.com. Perfect. I would love to hear from you. And I make sure I put this in the show notes so they can go ahead and click on it as they listen. Oh, good. Even better. <laughs> so well, I, I know I, would, I don't have the ideal name for a radio um, <laughs> advertisement. Yeah. Well, we, we do appreciate you, and we would love to have you on again one day. Thank you for all your work. Thank you. Well, there you have it. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Dr. Jacqueline Badalora. Uh, very insightful, very informative. Um, if you are interested in purchasing the book, you can go inside our show notes uh, and uh, you can click on the link that will take you to the storefront where you can purchase it. And uh, remember um, also to go into our show notes and click on the iTunes link where you can subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly love your reviews and your, your ratings because uh, they only allow more people to become aware of the show. Uh, and until next time, let's remember to read, listen, and explore. <laughs>